The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. morning we continue in God's Word. We've been studying the Gospel of John for a rather long time and we're nearly finished with it. We have studied through all of chapter 19 and the burial of Jesus last Sunday. So we come naturally to chapter 20. I will read the first 10 verses to give you historical background to resurrection morning. But my message today is actually from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 coming interpretation of the resurrection event. So I'll read first John 20, 1 through 10, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. Please hear God's word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw, and he believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. This is God's Word. We go to 1 Corinthians, which of course is written in interpretation of that which we've just read about, written by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church, which included many who did believe in the resurrection, but others who had skeptical questions to ask, and Paul is addressing those in 15, beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because We testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Father, we ask that we might hear these things with great power and give great glory to you through Jesus Christ who is risen. Amen. I begin today with a fictional fable. I don't know this as a true incident, but let's just imagine it. Once there was a man who thought he was dead. He went around telling everyone he was dead. He told his wife repeatedly, I'm dead. His wife finally decided something needs to happen here to get this guy straightened out, so she sent him to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist heard him declare, I'm dead, and he sought to cure the man by convincing him of some plain truth that would contradict his erroneous belief. So he told the man, you know, dead men do not bleed. The man pondered that for a few minutes, and he said, all right, doctor, I guess I can agree with you. Dead men do not bleed. The psychiatrist happened to have a needle in his hand, and he scratched the needle across the back of the man's hand and drew some blood. And the man looked at that. The point, of course, was that he would see his own blood and agree he must be alive because he was bleeding. But the confused man looked down at his bleeding hand and he said, Look, doctor, dead men do bleed after all. (laughs) Now that, of course, is humorous and sounds ridiculous. But honestly, that is not at all ridiculous when it pictures the idea of some people holding presuppositions or preconceived ideas in this world that control their understanding of reality. They've made up their minds to certain things in advance. And so when they look upon the world and try to tell you what's going on in the world, they will say, well, this is happening because my pre... And they won't admit it, but their preconception is coloring everything that they see, and they cannot even see true facts of reality sometimes. The man in the story reminds me of people who have decided that their preconceptions or presuppositions exclude the idea of the supernatural or the miraculous. There's no miracles. There's no supernatural. So we do, you know how you go to the eye doctor and they click all those lenses and everything looks different? They click all their lenses and they see the world according to their preconception. And it doesn't necessarily look like it actually is. But they say, my decision tells me there's no miracle, so I can't possibly look on something or hear something from Scripture and say, yes, indeed, that's a miracle. There's good logical evidence. There's good eyewitnesses who weren't lying. It must be true. I ask you on this Easter morning whether your understanding of Christianity is such that you have preconceived ideas that exclude the truth, that keep you from seeing what God is really doing in the world. Maybe you come with a kind of pseudo-faith that you think is scientific, and in your mind, of course, science always trumps everything else, cause and effect, observation, not belief of something that's beyond observation, and you say, well, it just, that just can't happen. 
Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is a tremendous chapter about the resurrection of Christ. It began in the first 11 verses. I didn't read them, but it tells about people who had witnessed Christ's resurrection. It it names a fact that we don't learn from elsewhere, the fact that 500 people saw him alive at one time. Now, there's about half again as many people in this room right now than 500, but let's just take the downstairs, perhaps, roughly 500 people. Imagine that. What that event was, we are not told elsewhere, but Paul says it happened. 500 people, many of whom are still alive, could tell you what they saw. They saw Jesus. But Paul was now addressing the fact that he knew there were people in Corinth who were saying, there's no resurrection. People don't come back to life. It just can't happen. And he was addressing that skepticism in the verses I read, 12 and following. No proofs, no evidences would seem to get through to these people that Paul was speaking to now. I'm not going to go into a complicated definition for a miracle. Let's just define a miracle as something that's explainable only by the power of God. It's not necessarily a violation of the laws of nature, so-called, because God made the laws of nature. He can unmake them. But it certainly does become something unusual and something startling when it is seen in the natural order. Christianity is a historical faith, a faith that deals with real people. That's why the Bible gives us genealogies of, of people and tries to pin them down and locate them very exactly so you will know they are specific people who lived in real time and space and had names and brothers-in-law and, and worked jobs like you do, and, and they had verifiable lives. And yet God did amazing things through some of these very ordinary people speaking to them at a burning bush, opening the Red Sea, causing blind people to see or even dead people to come back to life. Now, you can go to the Bible in a cavalier way and say, oh, it's an interesting little book of legends. I guess there are some people that aren't very well educated who believe those things that are in the Bible. But I must have a faith that can't include the supernatural. I have decided there is no supernatural. What amazing arrogance. I can't imagine being that arrogant before God. Supernatural events like the return of Jesus to bodily life, like the return of Jesus to human history, which is promised and yet not yet seen. Supernatural events are part and parcel of the fabric of the Bible. It would be interesting here in Lancaster County if somebody decided they were going to be a chicken farmer. I guess there's some place where you go to buy, what do we call them, pullets, the little chickens that aren't really chickens yet, and you need a thousand of these to get your chicken farm started. And you say, but you know, I've studied a lot about health, and I think I've understood from nutritionists that the yolks are the bad part of the egg that aren't so good for your heart or I want to raise healthy eggs that don't have yolks, so I'll just go and order a thousand chickens that give eggs with only the white part. No yolks, please. Good luck. Try to find those chickens somewhere. I don't think they exist. But it's about as silly as that if you declare from the start that there are no miracles, you are really saying there can be no Christianity. Because Christianity is all shot through with miracles in its entirety. 
The Apostle Paul here, in effect, is saying to the Corinthians in a hypothetical way, well, what if there were no... I'll go with you for a minute. What if there were no miracles? I'm not agreeing with you, but I'm just hypothetically going down that path. And so he gave this series of descriptions here. If there were none, then, if, then, if, then, is how he structures things here in verse 12 and following. I want to trace his structuring here first under the point that says, what if there were no miracles? What would a world without miracles be like? The first consequence to that is given in verses 13 and 14. Paul says, in a world without the resurrection miracle, our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. Boy, I've been preaching for a few years now. starting to really add up. I tell people I've been doing it for 41 years. They look at me and think, oh, you look much too young. Thank you very much. But I'm actually very old. 41 years of preaching, I've said a lot of things, hopefully to help people understand the Word of God, hopefully to help them find Christ and find new life and find guidance for their lives. Doesn't everybody want to think that what they've been doing with their life, whatever work it is, has some good in it and and helps other people? I don't care whether you milk cows or do surgery or whatever you do, you know, a trial lawyer or a nurse, you hope that you're contributing some greater good to other people and to society. I certainly hope that preaching has done some good. But Paul's saying here, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. I'll try to calculate how many hours I've been talking from pulpits in 41 years. That's a frightening number. But it's done no good. Not if Christ isn't risen. It's all been wasted. Paul says preachers are the biggest waste of human effort that could possibly be. What did you go to school for for four years? What did you read all those hundreds of books for? What did you pass all those arduous ordination exams for? Nothing! It wasn't worth anything. It was a waste of breath if Christ isn't risen. Well, that's a private tragedy for me, perhaps, but it gets worse here in the second sub-point, verse 15. Paul says, if Christ did not rise, we who do preach Christ are found to be false witnesses. Now, it's one thing just to waste my time and maybe waste your time. It's another thing if I'm actually a false witness. I'm a liar. I'm not an honest man. If there's no resurrection miracle, I'm a con artist. I'm a charlatan. I'm deliberately deluding the public. And worse than that, the 11 disciples who survived Jesus were rank liars of the first order because they created this thing that didn't happen. And I'm sure you all find this easy, real easy to believe, that they each spent several decades of their life perpetrating that lie and went to death as martyrs for that lie without ever admitting it was a lie. I personally find that very hard to believe that the 11 disciples participated in a hoax. The Watergate conspirators of the 1970s, there were, what, half a dozen, dozen of them involved in it, and Charles Colson, the late Colson, points out that they couldn't even keep it secret for more than a few months when the first started to fly in Washington. They all confessed the conspiracy. Do you really think those 11 apostles were liars. 
But thirdly, a third sub-point here, if there are no miracles, Paul is saying, this is bad. We're still in our sins. Nothing whatsoever has happened to affect our sinful condition. Christ went to the cross. All the promises were that he was the Lamb of God going to offer a sacrifice of atonement, a ransom payment to redeem men and women. And he died with that goal in mind. But it was an incomplete transaction that means nothing because he's dead. And if archaeologists only know the right place to dig, they would find some specific dust. I don't even think there'd be bones anymore. But they'd find some specific dust, and maybe they'd be able to say, aha, here's the dust of Jesus. It must exist if he didn't rise. So there's no justification with God for you. Ephesians 2.11 says we are dead, or at least we begin dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. Hell has not been remedied unless there's an Easter miracle, and you must not expect God to provide any salvation in the form of forgiveness or peace with Him or eternal life if Christ has not been raised. Another sub-point, verse 18, piles on more tragic news. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Just 24 hours ago, we had a memorial service in this sanctuary. Former member who had moved to Ohio to live and had died there and came back because he had lived here a long time, Al Strickler. We had a memorial service for Al here with his family. I preached Christian hope. I preached the resurrection. I preached a faith that Al steadfastly believed himself and assured his family that Al was a living spirit in the presence of God, that he was what is called in Hebrews 12, the soul of the righteous, perfected before God. I lied. I straight out lied. If there is no resurrection, there's no eternal life, there's no hope, your wife, your husband, your loved one who has died, I'm sorry to be so blunt, is fertilizer for daisies and nothing else if Christ has not been raised. Finally, on this list of sub-points that Paul has here, verse 19, one more, he says, take away the miracle of the resurrection and we are of all men the most to be pitied Without a God of immense power who can reach into our broken world to act in sovereign grace and raise his son bodily in victory so that he would ascend into heaven and rule at God's right hand and one day return to culminate history, we're pitiful. We're wasting an awful lot of time coming here to this place every Sunday. Why not go to the golf course? You know, Park City Mall surely could use a few more cars on Sunday morning if you can find a place. What are we doing anyway? We Christians are pitiful. If we're living our lives for a fable, that's what it is if there's no resurrection. We might as well go out there and live like everybody else, exploit every selfish instinct we have, pursue every sensual pleasure, seize power, trample on other people, indulge ourselves, To the hilt, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why in the world aren't we giving ourselves to that? We're pitiful. We're losers. 
if there's no resurrection. Can you see the unrelenting logic Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19? He's trying to make it so clear there is no merely naturalistic, non-supernatural Christianity. If it is not supernatural, if it is not founded upon God's power breaking in, then it's of no value at all. And I'm really honest, folks. I'm not saying this for rhetorical effect. If that was the situation, not only am I deeply misguided as a person in what I've done my entire career, I would think, having made the discovery that there really, really was no resurrection, I would want to commit suicide. I would not want to be in a world where God could not break in and show his marvelous power. Well, I, along with Paul, know what verse 20 says here, 1520. But in fact, let's talk about facts. Facts that are not excluded by your presuppositions and bias against supernaturalism. The fact is Christ has been raised from the dead as the first fruit of those who has fallen asleep. Let me then take you through a few more subpoints of a second thing here and express it positively. I've expressed it what if negatively. Let's say it positively. Christianity in the second place is a faith built entirely on miracles. And let me show you quickly in just a very rapid survey how it's not just in one or two partial areas. You know, we had in the early 20th century, theologians went through what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And one of the biggest thing was liberals saying, well, what do we do with miracles? We know miracles don't happen. So how many, you know, how can we eliminate these miracles that cause people a hard time when they think about Christianity? How, how little can you believe, basically, the liberal asked in the early 20th century, and still be a Christian? You certainly don't need the virgin birth, do you? You certainly don't need this. You don't need the bodily resurrection, but you can still be a Christian. Well, no. Denominations split, churches split. All kinds of bad things happened because people saw that liberalism was giving up the very core of Christianity when it gave up supernaturalism. G. Gretchen Machen said, if you, you, you're making another religion, liberal Protestantism is not Christianity simply and, and positively because Christianity is a faith built entirely on miracles. Someone has calculated that if you took miracles away entirely, if they didn't exist and couldn't happen, Christianity is the only religion that would really be hurt by that. Now, you go study world religions and ask yourself, does the Buddhist value miracles? Not really. Does Hinduism require miracles? Not really. Confucianism, Taoism... Do these religions require the miraculous? The fact is they don't. Their good philosophies, their systems of morality or systems of believing in something, but they do not require the miraculous. Here are some of the basic things in Christianity, basic doctrines I'll give you quickly, that require the miraculous or we can't have them at all. The doctrine of creation. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke, we read there, and it came into being, creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. 
God's spoken word brought things into being that did not previously exist. Hebrews 11.3 says it in these words, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that were visible. Out of nothing. Now, I respect science. I love science. I was headed into science, I think, as a high school student, but God steered the ship differently. And I've tried to read. I, I'm not advanced in my understanding of astrophysics and those who try to apply their brain to the origin of the universe, but I do read and try to understand some of what they're saying. And it seems like so many of the astrophysicists come up with some version or other of the Big Bang. Well, ask people who believe in the Big Bang, and this is an absolutely serious question. What existed one second before the Big Bang went off? Was there anything? Some will say, no, there was nothing. Well, if there was nothing, where did a bang come from? That's a justifiable question, and I have never read a scientist's answer to that. Scripture answers it. In the beginning, God, before a bang, God, created by his word out of nothing. We need a miracle, God, for that. The doctrine of revelation. I was in the new members class this morning, and one of our elders was giving the lesson on the Bible and its authority and its strength and its power. And you have to ask the question, you know, isn't it true that everything we do around here is based on this book? And here's a book in human words written by human beings, some 40 of them over a period of 1,500 years. It's a product of a publishing house, a printing press, uh, taking a piece of leather and shaping it and sewing it and pages put in here. It's a human book in, in one sense, and yet we read it and it exercises power on us and it shows us fulfilled prophecy and power in our lives. And we say, there's something about this book that's absolutely authoritative. It's actually a miraculous book. Written by men, yes. But First Timothy three second Timothy three sixteen says it was breathed out by God, by his Holy Spirit through human beings. It's a miracle book. It's a book of miraculous power. It changes people. Then you've got doctrines like the incarnation and the virgin birth. I won't it's not Christmas, I won't go into that one, but I think you understand. That while we say Jesus was a real man walking in a real world, looked like a man, shook your hand like a man, sat down and ate dinner with you like a man, had a conversation like a man, was born like a man, had a human mother, but he did not have a human father. And it says amazing things that he existed before time as the second person of the Godhead. Miraculous power in that. How about the doctrine of atonement or salvation, as you would call it? We certainly want to have an atonement, don't we? We want somebody to deal with our sins. We want somebody to give us peace with God. The Bible in Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus as God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Miracle. How does someone's death 
affect millions of other people. I'm a great fan of Abraham Lincoln. I have, I don't know, probably a dozen books about Abraham Lincoln at least, and there's many, many more written that I don't have. And the death of Lincoln was something that stirred our whole country, even people who hated him. They called him a baboon. Did you know that? When he was first elected president, he had bitter enemies in his own party. When he died, people began to realize that Lincoln had been something pretty amazing. And yet Lincoln's death didn't provide an atonement for anybody's sin. It didn't transform anybody's life as the life of Jesus offered on the cross did. And then, of course, the bodily resurrection. I haven't forgotten that it's Easter Day. I'm not dwelling on the resurrection in that sense. I'm not giving you the proofs that we often give on Easter. And you can go down the list, one, two, three, four, five. There's at least about 15 solid historic proofs you have to explain away if you're going to explain away the resurrection. Miracle event. How about one more? The new birth. The new birth by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said no one will see the kingdom of God unless he is born again by the Spirit of God. Every Christian, every one of you that has confessed the name of Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of your sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit, you are God's latest miracle in human history. Christians are miracles. Titus 3.5 says God saved us by the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit when he poured out generously to us Jesus Christ, our Savior. How silly that some people walk around and say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-again Christians. Let's not even go there. That's so silly. If you haven't been saved by the washing of rebirth in the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. You see, the anti-supernaturalist would come to Christianity and say, well, okay, I'll, I'll put one foot, one toe in your water, in your pool called Christianity, but don't expect me to believe in miracles. Again, you're the person who wants the chickens that don't lay eggs with yolks in them. And people with those presuppositions are really acting like dead people. They might have five PhDs after their name. They might have great credentials and have won a Nobel Prize, but they're dead. Their intellect is dead because their presupposition is overruling everything and not allowing them to see the truth of God. Christianity says God who made our universe and us can and does powerfully intervene in human lives now, today. He's done it many times in history. Oh, you didn't see it happen? Well, other people have. Credible witnesses have. Jesus was a man of history, and he was also our creator and savior and king, and therefore we are people who love to sing. Believe me, I get notes if I didn't include it in the Easter service. Up from the grave he arose. You love that song. I know you do. Is that just a song for Easter Day? Is that the one and only miracle we can believe in? Or is it a God of miracles suffusing this whole universe and our lives and all of human history with his wonder-working power constantly at work by the Holy Spirit in his people? We should be singing another song all our lives, not just Easter, 
Some of you know it well, a song in our book that goes, Great God of Wonders. God of Wonders. All your ways are matchless, godlike, and divine. That's a song for every Sunday and every single day for that matter. The core of Christianity is that the God of miracles sent his Son to experience a violent, degrading, terrible cross so that he would come forth from a tomb on the third day, concluding the plan of God, and so that a personal miracle would be available for you and in you, a new birth as Jesus Christ comes into your life. I don't know whether your mindset is predisposed to hear this. I'm quite sure in a number of people of this size, there are some. Your arms may not be literally folded, but the arms of your mind are folded, and you're saying, this is all nonsense. How soon can I get out of here? I declare to you without apology this morning, the greatest fact you can ever hope to know from this miracle-working God has been sung quite a few different ways here already today. Christ the Lord is risen indeed. Amen. Father, how can we ever say it with enough power, enough strength? How can we ever over-exaggerate you as God of miracles? All that you do is miraculous. All that you do shows the power of a creator, a redeemer, a savior. How silly that a human being should stand up and say, oh, I'm sorry, God isn't allowed to do miracles. My science textbook says otherwise. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul, who argued so well and so capably. Thank you for Mary Magdalene and Peter and John running to the tomb who looked in and weren't expecting what happened that day. They, of all people, weren't expecting it. They saw it and they believed it. Help us do the same. Amen.